Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all this morning. Just one correction to the notices, which Rob wasn't aware of. Uh, Ryan's actually sick. Ryan has man flu, so he's not very well. And Joel and Emily are also away in Eastern Europe at a wedding, so the space isn't happening tonight. Um, so just be aware of that, parents and teenagers alike. There's no space tonight through illness and absence. Um, so, yeah, but it will be back on again next week. When I left school, which was uh, longer ago than I care to remember, I spent six weeks that summer working on a pig farm. It's a friend's pig farm. And I spent most of that six weeks pressure washing pig pens, which was a really glamorous job, for which I earned the grand total of £60 a week. I was living it up, as you can imagine. And have you ever seen anybody pressure washing? Um, if you see people like in a, a car wash, tend to just kind of wave the pressure washer around. That's not how you're meant to use a pressure washer. Pressure washer was meant to be about two or three inches away from the target, and you use the power of the water like a blade to strip off the, the dirt. That, that's the way you're meant to use a pressure washer. There's a picture here of uh, me, well, it's not me, but um, of what I look like uh, doing that pressure washing. And the idea was that the that the blade of the water, if you imagine the, the uh, water like a blade, it kind of strips off layer after layer. And these pig pens hadn't been washed for several years, so there was layer upon layer of pig muck that had built up. You had to kind of strip one layer off and then, uh, then go back and do it all again. And there was, these, these were two massive, big, long sheds with loads of big uh, pig pens. And it, at first, it was quite satisfying. At first, it was quite satisfying as you see in kind of layers coming off. And then you see the concrete almost back to its original state. That's quite a satisfying thing. But after a few days, the novelty of having, you know, kind of sort of keep your mouth closed in case pig muck splashed up into your mouth and standing there, the kind of novelty began to wear off, if I'm honest. And it was very difficult to keep myself motivated to keep doing that hour after hour, day after day. It was fun for a few days. You know, you just left school, you're getting paid, it's something new, it's something different. After a few days, the novelty was really wearing off, and I was really beginning to get a little bit fed up with it. And it was difficult to keep putting that same level of effort in every hour, every day, week after week, and especially when you could see that there were still you know, great big long sheds full of pig pens, loads more to do. And the owner of that farm, who was a close family friend, which made it all a little bit more complicated, he was away for two weeks. So you know, when the boss isn't there, and you've just doing a pig pen, the temptation is to not perhaps put just quite as much effort in as maybe I should have been doing or I would have been doing perhaps if he was stood there watching. And it was hugely tempting to work less hard knowing that he wasn't watching. But there was this complicating factor, as I said, that actually there were close family friends and actually he was a Christian and while I was working on the farm, I was eating with them and I was going to their church. So it was a very complicated situation, not one that I would recommend. For many reasons. I only had to clean those pig pens for six weeks, six, six weeks of my life. But some people spend their entire life doing jobs that they really don't enjoy. Uh, some jobs that are really bad, really unfair, some horrendous situations that some people find themselves working in day after day, uh, even in this country. I was at least getting paid, not very much, but I was getting something and I was getting my, my food and my board as well. Whereas it's estimated that between 40 and 45 million people today in the world are in actual slavery. That's it's outrageous, isn't it? That's shocking. We thought the slave trade was banned 200 years ago, but actually 40 to 45 million people today, it's estimated by the UN, are in literal physical slavery. And this is staggering, but apparently there's around 13,000 people in the UK 
in slavery. It's hidden, it's, it's, it's not public, and occasionally it, it makes the news. The police have freed people that have often been trafficked or uh, have ended up in bad situations. 13,000 people here in the UK hidden away in slavery. When the New Testament of the Bible was written in the first century AD, it's estimated that around one-third of the population of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. One-third of the entire population of the Roman Empire were in slavery. Some of them lived in terrible conditions, but actually most were household slaves, kind of more like an indentured servant or someone in household service was perhaps back in the sort of 18, 1700s in this uh, country. They lived in the house, they'd have rooms attached to the house, or they were kind of part of the, the wider household. Some slaves did have bad lives, undoubtedly, but others had quite good lives. Relatively speaking, they would look after the uh, children of the master, they would often be involved in their business, they would often have some quite significant roles and positions. Some actually had quite good lives, relatively speaking. And slavery in the Roman Empire was, inc- was very, very different to the slavery of Africans who were brutally... Uh, uh, taken to the Americas in the 18th and 19th century. Slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't race-based. All sorts of people from every different race, all different kind of economic situations and countries uh, were taken in slavery. It was basically if one country, if if the Romans defeated you, lots of people were taken in slavery. And some people even sold themselves into slavery because they were in poverty and it it was safer to be a slave because at least you'd be fed and provided for than it was to have no work and be in poverty. So slavery was an everyday part of life in the Roman Empire, not the same as the kind of slavery that we would be appalled by, perhaps from a history like uh, in the southern American states and so on. It was just an everyday part of life in the Roman Empire. Most people were either slave owners or slaves. The majority of people were either slave owners or were slaves. And so when people in the Roman Empire began to respond to the good news about Jesus as the early church went out, people like Paul and Peter and John and others who went out across the Roman Empire and churches started, as they began, as the people began to respond to the message about Jesus and become Christians and join local churches, most of those were either slaves or slave owners or or a significant proportion of them would have either been slaves or they owned slaves. Now, we are rightly outraged when we hear about slavery around the world today, and and particularly when we think about it in the West African slave trade of the 1700s and 1800s. But as I say, slavery was just part and parcel of everyday life in the New Testament era. When the Bible was written in the New Testament, it was just normal. Nobody really would have thought about it in those terms. And the letters that were written by men like Paul and and Peter uh, and John in the New Testament were full of references and are full of references to slavery. And that's because as those churches were started, lots of the people were either slaves or slave owners. And that posed some big questions, some big ethical questions and challenges and dilemmas. What should slaves and slave owners do now that they trusted in Jesus? What should they do with this situation? How should slaves who'd become Christians behave? Should they attempt to free themselves? What should slave owners who had become Christians do with their slaves? What what should happen when both the slave and the slave owner both became Christians and found themselves in the same church on Sunday morning? That would have been a little bit odd, wouldn't it? A little bit of a weird situation. Well, the issue is addressed on a whole number of occasions throughout the New Testament. 
And in the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and we're working our way as a church through 1 Timothy, and we have been doing over this last year. In the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, it's full of instructions on how a local church should function. In fact, we find probably more about how a local church should function in 1 Timothy than any other letter in the New Testament. And as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, Paul had appointed Timothy to oversee the church in Ephesus, or the churches that were in that city. As he wrote to Timothy, he gave him some instructions for how to deal with this complex issue of slavery. How do we deal with the fact that we've got Christians who are slaves and we've got Christians who are slave owners and some of them are even in the same place uh, all at one time? What do we do about that? But before we look at the passage that we're looking at today in detail, which is about physical slavery, it's good to take a step back and see what the Bible says about spiritual slavery. Slavery was an everyday part of life in the Roman Empire. It was just normal. It was part and parcel of life. And Jesus and the rest of the New Testament writers, they used physical slavery as a picture for spiritual slavery. The writers of the Bible used the picture of physical slavery to teach us something, about, to teach us something that's even more important than physical slavery, which is spiritual slavery. The Bible says this, that people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And the Bible says that it's sin that has mastered every human being. Everybody, according to the Bible, is a slave to sin. People think that they're free to live as they want, particularly more and more in our culture today. I am free from all restraints. I'm free from all rules and regulations and cultural norms. And I would just live as I want. I'm free. But what they don't realize, according to the Bible, is that what they think is freedom is actually slavery to sin. Jesus said these words, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, that's Jesus, sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Bible presents the concept of every single person that has ever lived being in slavery to sin. The master of every human being is sin. Sin is in charge of their lives, and it rules them like a slave master. People have no choice. They're they're, they're trapped. They're in slavery to sin. But if and when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, and when we surrender our lives to him and make him the Lord of our life, then actually we're set free from that slavery to sin, and we're adopted as children into God's family. That's amazing, isn't it? We're set free from sin by trusting in Jesus. We're set free from the the power of sin and the result and the penalty of sin. And we're adopted into God's family. When Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome, this is what he said, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So when we respond to this fantastic good news that God loves us, that Jesus has died for us, that on the cross Jesus has taken the the punishment for every single wrong thing we've ever done, and that by putting our faith and our trust in who Jesus is and what he's done, we can have our sins forgiven and we can have the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus given to us and we can have a relationship with God and eternal life. When we respond to that package of information, what the Bible calls the gospel, the good news, then we are no longer slaves to sin. We're set free. And instead, we become slaves to God. When we trust in Jesus, God declares us to be holy, and he gives us eternal life as a free gift. So instead of sin being our master, God is now our master. Instead of being helpless and powerless in in slavery to sin, with sin in charge of our lives, when we trust in Jesus, we're set free from sin. We no longer have to obey sin. We are free from it. 
We're dead to sin according to the Bible. And we make the choice instead to have God as our master. We choose to give our lives to him. It's a choice we make. And what we discover is, is that as we choose to surrender our lives to, to, to God, we become slaves to God. We actually become more free than we can ever imagine. Slavery to God is not a negative thing. Slavery to sin is. Slavery to God, slavery to Jesus is, tr- is true freedom. We are free to then be the people that God really made us to be. It's when we trust in Jesus, when we surrender our lives to him and begin to live the way that God wants, then we discover that we're living the way that we were created to live. And no longer are we in conflict with God's plan for our life. We become really free. Real freedom is when God is in charge of our lives. That means that not only do we become slaves to God, but we also become slaves to living God's way. We become slaves to righteousness. Paul says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So instead of sin being in charge of our lives, if we've trusted in Jesus, then it's righteousness that's in charge. Righteousness simply means right living. It's living and behaving the way that God wants us to live. That's what it means to be righteous. So take your outline this morning, uh, or your bulletin. On the other side of the bulletin, there's an outline of all the sermon. And write this down. When we trust in Jesus, we become slaves to God and righteousness. We become slaves to God and righteousness. That is this amazing transition that takes place when we put our trust in Jesus. When we surrender our lives and say, it's no longer me that's in charge. In fact, it's no longer even that sin that's in charge. Now, it's you that's in charge. I become a slave to God and righteousness. That's an amazing situation. A transformation that takes place. We become slaves to God and righteousness. I wonder how you would describe yourself this morning. Would you describe yourself as a slave to sin, or would you describe yourself as a slave to righteousness and to God? Is sin your master, or is God your master? According to the Bible, there's only two options. Either sin is our master, or God is our master. Either sin is our master, or God is our master. Sometimes God is our master, but we behave as if sin was still our master. When in fact what we need to do is understand our new identity, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are free, and sin is counted dead to us. And so we have to make that daily choice to say, I am now a new person. I am free from sin, and I will be a slave to God. Is sin your master, or is God your master? So when a person trusts in Jesus, they're no longer slaves to sin, but they're slaves to God and they're slaves to righteousness. But for many in the New Testament era, for many Christians in that time, when they were getting these letters from people like Paul and John and Peter and so on, they were still physical slaves. They'd been set free from sin. They were no longer spiritual slaves, but they were still physically slaves. And many of them were the owners of slaves. So what were they supposed to do with that? What what would that look like? How would they deal with that? What God wanted them to do was to bring their new submission to him as their master and to living a righteous life and apply that submission to God and to righteousness to their new situation as slaves or as slave owners. If they were slaves, then they were to live and serve their slave masters in a way or in such a way that showed that God was now their master and that they were living a righteous life. If they were slave owners and they were to treat their slaves in a way that showed that God was now their master. In other words, treat their slaves with love and respect. 
So the point is this, when we become a Christian, it should transform the way in which we conduct ourselves right across our lives. In this case, when we're slave owners or, or slaves, we're not in that situation today, but we are often employed or we are employees. It's fascinating to look at church history. And in Northern Ireland, there was a great revival about 100 years ago. And in Short's uh, factory in Northern Ireland, many, many of the people became Christians. And as they did so, they, they brought all the tools back that they'd stolen when they weren't Christians. And the productivity went through the roof because suddenly they were different people. And they began to work for their bosses as if they were working for Jesus. And it transformed how they functioned and how they lived and how they behaved. Their bosses hadn't changed, many of them, but they had. And it transformed how they live. In the Welsh Revival in 1904, the uh, pit ponies that were used to dragging up the coal from the pits, they didn't know what to do anymore because they were used to being sworn at by the miners. And so many of the miners became Christians, they no longer swore at the ponies. But the ponies only responded to swear words. That was how they responded. And suddenly, these pit ponies had no idea how to respond. That's the, the power of people's lives being transformed by the good news and then them applying their slavery to God and righteousness to their workplaces. And this is what the Bible teaches should happen. And we're going to look at that in a bit more detail in a moment. But why doesn't the Bible teach that slavery is evil and that all Christian slave owners should, sh should set their slaves free and that Christian slaves should go on strike or rebel? That, that, that might seem a kind of reasonable thing for us to expect. Well, what we need to be really clear about is that the Bible never approves of slavery. It never encourages it. It simply deals with it as a fact of life. The Bible teaches that Every single human being is equal, regardless of uh, their race, their social status, uh, their age, sex, whatever. Every single human being has been made in God's image and is precious to God. And according to Jesus, the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, mind, but also to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so slavery given those commandments, is clearly wrong. It's utterly wrong, isn't it? To, to enslave another human being made in the image of God goes against everything that the Bible teaches. But there's a number of reasons why the New Testament writers didn't explicitly encourage the abolition of slavery or teach against it. Firstly, slavery was an integral part of the social and economic world of the first century. So to ask the church, to ask Christians to go out and abolish slavery was basically asking them to abolish the Roman Empire. It was basically asking them to go out and defeat the entire Roman Empire. Christians, whether they were slaves or slave owners, were just a tiny, tiny percentage of the population of the Roman Empire in that first century. They had, there was no possible way they could defeat slavery. That was completely crazy. They, they lacked the power to influence government policy. They couldn't go and speak to their MP. They couldn't start campaigns. They couldn't, they, that didn't exist. That, that was a complete uh, crazy idea. They couldn't do that. They didn't, lack, they didn't have the power or the influence that the church has often had, uh, particularly in the last few centuries here in the West, or in the way uh, it took place here in the 19th century when leading Christians managed to really uh, influence the parliament in this country and to bring about the abolition of slavery. People like William Wilberforce, who, uh, along with others, campaigned tirelessly over years and years, using their influence and their position to bring about transformation and change in the, in the wider world. But there were no Christians in those kind of positions in the early church. They didn't have that uh, capacity. The Roman system wasn't set up like that. And so slave owners became Christians and then decided to release their slaves 
they could make, they, they, they could actually be causing all kinds of problems. And actually, if they released their slaves, they'd actually probably make life even worse for the slaves because they'd be condemning them to poverty because the slaves would have nowhere to go. To free your slave was to consign them to poverty and starvation. Far better to keep them as slaves, but then to treat them in a Christ-like way so that they had food and shelter, whereas if they were freed, they'd have nothing. And the early church knew that slavery wasn't going to be abolished anytime soon, and they knew that they didn't have the political power to bring it to an end. Instead, they were encouraged, and they chose to encourage, uh, focusing on uh, encouraging their fellow Christians to to realize their new relationship with each other, their new identity in their relationships with each other, and that their new identity was ultimately now what mattered, their spiritual identity. What mattered was that they were now submitting to God as their master, and so that that would dictate the way they behaved towards each other, how they would relate towards each other. Their human identity and position couldn't easily be changed. Most people had no means of changing that. But what mattered was that those earthly realities, their, their, their physical reality, was seen to be trivial in comparison with the eternal reality that they were now free in Christ and that they were uh, slaves to God and righteousness. But arguably the greatest reason was that spreading the good news about Jesus was the most important thing for Christians in the New Testament to focus on, and it should be for us to do today. Paul says this to Titus when he writes to Titus about slavery. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So as important as the rights of slaves and social justice was and is, making the teaching about God our Savior, in other words, the gospel, making that teaching attractive is even more important. If they were good slaves, then Christian slaves were more likely to be able to influence their masters and lead them to faith in Christ. If they had rebelled, that would have been the end of that opportunity. If Christians had tried to throw off slavery all the Christians would have just been rounded up and executed. That would have been the end of the church. That would have been the end of the gospel. The non-Christians would have viewed the Christian faith and message as a threat to the entire system of the Roman Empire, and the church would have just been wiped out. And so as important as, important as they are and were, social justice and social change are not the first priority of the follower of Jesus. They're important, but they're not the first priority. The first priority of the follower of Jesus should be to worship God, and to help other people become worshippers of God. The first priority of the follower of Jesus is to be a worshipper of God, and secondly, to bring other people into a position where they worship God. If we're slaves to God and righteousness, in other words, if God is our master, then a major priority for us should be to bring other people into a relationship with God through Jesus. Other things are important, but not as important as that. So with all that in mind, that's just the background. We're going to get into the passage today, and we're going to look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 to 2. It's only one and a half verses. Uh, unhelpfully, the guys who put verse numbers in several centuries ago didn't put them in uh, the, always the most helpful places. So we're going to read verses 1 and 2 and just the first part of verse 2, okay? So Paul writes this. He's writing about loads of different things. 
uh, about how a church should function, and he's dealing now specifically with what do you do with the fact that some of you are slaves and some of you are slave masters, and some of you are even in the same household in the same church. So he says this to Timothy, all who are under the yoke of slavery, this is 1 Timothy 6 verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. So Paul tackles two specific situations with regard to slavery in these two short verses. The first is this. How do slaves that have become Christians behave if they were unable to gain their freedom, which would generally be the case? And the second is how slaves who'd be who become Christians should behave if their slave masters had also become Christians. So look at what Paul says, if we back up a little bit, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, were you a slave when you were called? And when he says the expression when you were called, that's kind of New Testament language for when you became a Christian. Okay? So were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. If a slave had become a Christian and they were able to gain their physical freedom, then they should do so. But If not, which would be generally the situation, then they were to submit to their slave master. So Paul says back in 1 Timothy 6, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching, in other words, the teaching of the good news about Jesus, may not be slandered. So irrespective of how their slave master behaved, the Christian slave was to continue submitting to their slave master and to show them and to give them full respect. Why? So that God's name and the message of the good news about Jesus, what we call the gospel, so that it wouldn't be slandered or or spoken ill of. For the follower of Jesus, there is something bigger, there is something more important than our rights, our working conditions, our workplace rights, or than social justice. And that it's this, God's glory, God's fame, God's reputation, God's name. Those things are more important than our workplace rights, than what we would like to happen at work, or our situation, or wider social justice. If we're a follower of Jesus, then we need to do all that we can to represent God well, and represent the Christian faith well, and the message about Jesus. We need to represent that well, and make sure that our behavior doesn't give people a reason not to engage with that message. The message about Jesus, the Bible says, is a stumbling block. People don't like it because it it calls on them to surrender their lives to Jesus. Nobody wants to do that. That's about giving up our own kind of self-autonomy. The message of the gospel is a stumbling block. What we don't want to do is put further stumbling blocks by our behavior in the way of people we work with encountering that great message. So if a Christian slave, or in today's culture, in our situation, if a Christian employee behaves badly or is disrespectful towards their slave master or their employer, then it's going to bring the name of Jesus and the message about Jesus into disrepute. Call yourself a Christian? You've probably heard that at work. I certainly did. Call yourself a Christian. If a, you know, and we bring our, by our behavior, can bring the gospel and the name of Jesus into disrepute. And it can give the gospel a bad name. There's something bigger, there's something more important than what we want, what I want, than my rights or the things that I would like to be different in my workplace. For the follower of Jesus, our lives should be all about bringing glory to God and bringing other people to God. And despite how some of us may feel at times, none of us here today are actually slaves. Some of you might feel 
you know, your kind of work is bordering on slavery, but none of us, as far as I'm aware, are actually physically slaves here today. But nevertheless, some of you may have some really difficult situations at work. Some of you may have some really tough situations. I had to get a taxi on Friday morning to take my car in to get fixed, and the, and the lady who gave me a, a taxi ride said to, to basically just to make a living, she had to work 12 hours a day, 12 days, a, 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 seven days a week. It's not slavery, but not far off, is it? And some people, some of you this morning will have bosses that are nasty, that are unpleasant, that make your life really, really difficult. I certainly had one boss when I was uh, in employment who was, who was a really unpleasant individual. Really, really, he was a bully, he was horrible. You should see the two bosses I currently have to work for. <laughs> and you know, the challenge for us all is to try to behave at work or in a way that brings God glory and helps us spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus. None of us here today are slaves but the principles that this passage is teaching are just the same for us this morning. Am I a slave to God and a slave to righteousness when I'm at work? Does the fact that I've been set free from slavery to sin and have become a slave to God, does that show when I'm at work? Can people see that I'm a follower of Jesus in my timekeeping so that you know, when I'm meant to clock on at 8 o'clock, do I, do I do that at 8 o'clock or do I pitch in at 10 past 8? Can people see that I'm a Christian in the way that I handle my work expenses? Do I claim for stuff I'm not actually entitled to? Do I take stuff home that's not really mine? If I came to your house, would I find loads of pens? You'll certainly find lots of regent pens in my house. That's probably a little bit different. But would I find lots of things in your house? When I used to work in my old job, we used to get a delivery of toilet rolls on a big wagon, a big office, and within a day or two, it had all gone. And it wasn't until about two years at that office I realized that it all went straight home. People just took them all straight home. And we had ER stamped on all the soap bars. And when you went to some of the guys I worked with their houses, you'd find in their bathroom soap with ER stamped on it, clearly stealing from the workplace. Would, do people see in the way that you work, the way that you behave towards your boss or your employer, that you were a follower of Jesus? Can people see that you're a follower of Jesus in the way that you talk about others at work? That's really difficult, isn't it? When you get dragged in or caught in kind of workplace politics and, and office gossip and all that kind of stuff. Does my behavior, does your behavior at work speak well of Jesus? Is my behavior at work a help or is it a hindrance to people that I work with, the people that you work with, finding out more about Jesus? Some slaves that had become Christians might have also found that their slave owners had become Christians. And they were all at the same church in Ephesus on a Sunday morning. That would have been a bit strange, wouldn't it? How would you feel about your boss, whoever that is, getting saved and coming to Regent on a Sunday? Anybody a little bit uncomfortable with that? Yeah, it'd be a bit awkward, wouldn't it? It'd be a bit strange. And that's fine. You're in an employment situation. But imagine if they're your slave owner. It would have been quite a strange thing, wouldn't it? So what were they to do about that? Well, when a person trusts in Jesus, the Bible says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When Christians gather together in the name of Jesus as the church, God doesn't view some of us as superior or inferior based on our race or our sex or our social status. We are all equal. We are all one in Christ. So in church gatherings... The Christian slave masters and the slaves would be equal. And that would have been a bit difficult to, to handle that. That would have been a strange situation, but that was the biblical situation. The slaves and the slave masters had to leave their social status behind when they came to church. They were brothers and sisters now. 
They were one in Christ. But when they went back to their homes, the Christian slaves still had to submit to their slave masters. And there was a danger that the Christian slaves might have been tempted to take advantage of the fact that their masters were now also their brothers and sisters. Maybe they could get away with a bit more or not have to work quite as hard. So Paul says this, those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. Instead of taking advantage of their Christian masters, they were to serve them even better because not only were they their masters, but now they were their brothers and sisters. They were part of the family of God. And if today we find ourselves working for another Christian, then we're to make sure that we don't take advantage of them or show them less respect you know, or in some way abuse that situation. In Ephesians 6, which we're going to look at in a moment, what we see is that we're meant to serve those we work for as if we're serving Jesus himself. And that can really transform a workplace situation. If we are really struggling with our job and really dislike it, if we begin to think, I'm now going to see this job as me serving Jesus, I'm working for Jesus, I'm plastering this ceiling for Jesus, I'm teaching for Jesus, instead of whoever we currently work for, that can transform our situations. But it's a big challenge too, isn't it? Paul doesn't deal with how Christian slave masters were to behave in 1 Timothy, but he does in Ephesians 6. I think it's just good to briefly look at that. Let's look at what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So just as being a slave to God and righteousness was meant to change how uh, Christian slaves behaved, so being a slave to God and righteousness was meant to change how Christian slave masters behaved. And none of us today, I think, are slave masters that I'm aware of. I hope not, anyway. But quite a few of us, quite a few of you this morning may well be people who employ others. You may employ them directly or you may be their boss in a kind of bigger company situation. And the challenge for us, the challenge for you, if that's you this morning, if you have staff that work for you or you have staff that work underneath you, whether you employ them directly or just in a kind of line management role, is to make sure that we treat those who work for us in a Christ-like way and that we don't abuse our position. So if you employ staff, if you have people working to you or for you, then we're to try and take that slavery to God and righteousness into our workplace so that we treat our staff, we treat those who work for us in a Christ-like way and that we don't abuse our position. There's something bigger, there's something more important than our careers or our workplace targets or our rights or our wages or our employment conditions. They're not unimportant, but there's something bigger and more important. And that is God's glory, his name, his fame, his reputation, and the spreading of the good news about Jesus so that people who are slaves to sin right now might also be set free. So three big questions for us to think about this morning as we we wrap this up. Firstly, does my behavior at work bring honor and glory to the gospel? Sorry, to God. Does my behavior at work, does it bring honor and glory to God? Secondly, does my behavior at work, does it help or does it hinder the gospel? Does my behavior at work help or hinder the gospel? Let's just take a few moments to pause and reflect on what we've looked at this morning. Are you a slave to sin? 
Do you think you're free when really you're actually a slave to sin? If that's you, can I challenge you to see the reality that you are in slavery and you need to be set free? And only Jesus can set you free. And if that's the case, if that's you, then ask Jesus to set you free and surrender your life to him this morning. Are you a slave to God and righteousness? If that's you, then does the way you behave at work show that God is your master? What's more important to you, your career, your salary, your rights, your targets, your conditions, or is it God's glory and seeing other people set free from slavery to sin? Those two things are not necessarily in conflict, but when they are, then we need to let them one go and focus on God's glory. Let's just bow our heads, shall we, and just take a few moments to consider these questions together. Does my behavior at work bring honor and glory to God? Does my behavior at work help or hinder the gospel? Am I a slave to sin or am I a slave to God and righteousness? Let's just close our eyes for a few moments. Then I'm going to pray and the band are going to come back up and lead us uh, in worship and as we take communion together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to set us free. Thank you that the truth sets us free. And if we're free, we are free indeed. Thank you that so many of us this morning can say that you have set us free from slavery to sin. and We're now slaves to God and righteousness. Father, would you help us to take that obedience to you as our new master? Would you help us to take that and apply that to every situation in our lives? Help us to apply that to our employment situations. Help us to apply that to our bosses or to our staff us to behave in a way that honors you and, and, and helps the gospel be spread. But would you change our hearts? Would you encourage us? Would you help us? Would you help us to be great ambassadors for you in our workplaces? Help us to share the good news about Jesus with people at work this week. Help us to bring you glory in all that we do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.